And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Long before the world knew him as a White House press secretary, Jay Carney was a great reporter, covering things as varied as the U.S. invasion of Panama and the uh, nearly successful coup to topple Gorbachev in Russia. He was a respected Washington correspondent. And then in 2008, he decided to cross over and went to work for Vice President Biden, which is when I got uh, to know him, and ultimately as spokesperson for President Obama. Now he's a honcho at Amazon. I sat down with him recently to talk about all of his different careers and get his insights on what he's seeing out there today. Jay Carney, it is great to be with you, my old my old friend and colleague. Um, you know, in I, preparing for this, I um, I always get notes, and this line I kind of enjoyed, which is not much is known about Carney's childhood, <laughs> besides the fact that he did not have a blue blood, silver spoon in the mouth pedigree of many of his peers. So I think one of the services we can provide for researchers everywhere is to fill in this sort of epic gap in your history. <laughs> and uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your family and how, how you grew up. Well, uh, we're in Washington, D.C. as we record this. And I, I was actually born in D.C., not very common, uh, because my father was a foreign service officer and he happened to have been stationed after a stint in Germany, in Bremen, Germany. He came to D.C. Uh, and I, I was born here. Not that many years afterwards, that was in 65, he quit the State Department, retired from the Foreign Service, and uh, ended up staying in, in the area. He's from Southern Virginia, from Norfolk, Virginia, so he stayed in Northern Virginia. So oh, grew, was your, your family are the Carnies? Carnies are, you know, Virginians from way back, uh, from that area, that Tidewater area, uh, and he's got, uh, uh, he's still out there. He, I've got two aunts, his sisters still live in, in Virginia. We've got some families still down in, in, in Norfolk, but just distant, and some in North Carolina on that side of the family. My mother grew up in Manhattan as a New Yorker, so it was a real Yankee meet Southerner kind of uh-huh. thing uh, back when they uh, when they got married. But And what did your dad do when he left the foreign service? He did, he did a lot. He went into business consulting in a weird, not business, but he, he did stuff for schools. He did stuff for, he tells, told me stories about um, Helping out uh, at Columbia when they were having protests uh, over the Vietnam War and talking to the protesters and talking to the administration. And then he ended up doing a lot of, over the years, doing a lot of uh, USAID work mm-hmm. uh, in Africa and, and other places. Um, he's retired now, but, you know, he's uh, uh, sometimes now when I get to go to those places or when I was traveling with the president, he would always tell me stories about what it was like back back when he was doing it. And you end up uh, going uh, to boarding school. I did. My parents split up and um, my sister is a year older and I got shipped out. So, yeah. uh, which turned out to be a good thing because I was... Did you think it was a good thing then? No. was totally opposed. Did not want to go. I went to a school that was then all boys. Uh, not my... Um, did you feel like you were being shipped out? Oh, we're getting personal. Um, a li- you know, a little bit, but I also kind of knew in the back of my mind even then that... Uh, I was kind of making my way haphazardly through, uh, you know, young adulthood or teenagehood and uh, was kind of screwing up a bit. And, and that if I hadn't gone away, 
I, I wouldn't have gotten the education that I got and I wouldn't have, you know, a lot of the things that flow in the way, you know, in the way life unfolds wouldn't have happened. So even then I probably knew it was a good thing, but I didn't tell my dad that, of course, you know, so. And, uh, well, you, you obviously straightened out. You ended up. I can't, yeah, I had some at, moments at in high Yale. School. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I didn't get into Yale, man. So. <laughs> um, well you did okay, Axe. Uh, yeah. and that was a great experience. And, for me, it was because I, it was the first place, like I wanted to, you know, not first place, but I really wanted to be there and I loved every minute of it. And, you know, I wasn't the world's greatest student there, but at Yale, at Yale. but I, but I worked hard and, and I love, I learned how to love learning and I fell into serendipitously uh, studying Russian, which if I'm older, you know, and take, this was back in the, I think I got to New Haven in the fall of 83. I had a friend who was studying Russian. I had a friend from growing up here who was studying it at another university. And then I kind of loved Russian literature and thought of myself. You know, I'd, once I read Crime and Punishment, I was like, you yes, know, Dostoevsky. And, exactly, and uh, yeah. so it was more literary, but also an interest in sort of like the Cold War and the enemy. And, and I was sort of intrigued. And I started studying Russian actually the summer after my freshman year in college. I went and spent a, a, a bus tables in New York and took uh, an intensive first-year class at Columbia so I could take a year of college Russian in like eight weeks. And so I could come back in the beginning of my sophomore year take the intensive second and third year in, in one academic year, which meant that I was the worst student in that little class. But uh, because I, I don't really know why, I decided I was interested and wanted to become a Russian studies major, which I ended up being. And if you go back to that time, when I started studying Russian, I think Either Andropov or Chinyenko was, you know, uh, the head of the Communist Party and the leader of the country. And, and they had and, a succession of short-lived. Yeah, uh, and and then I remember the spring of '85 being on spring break, the first time I had ever been west of uh, the Appalachian Mountains. Really, a friend of mine from college who had grown up in the Bay Area in California. We went um, out to to his home in uh, in outside of uh, Berkeley, where his dad was a professor. And I remember looking at at a bus stop, looking at the uh, newspaper box and it said, you know, Gorbachev selected as next leader of the uh, next Soviet leader. And I thought, man, I remember thinking that's interesting. And, and, uh, and by the time I graduated a couple years later, he was of course this mm -hmm. phenomenon and, and things were changing and I really wanted to go to, uh, to the Soviet Union, what was then the Soviet Union as a reporter. And I was doing some journalism in college and I yeah, just got this was fixation. Yeah, that just because, um, you didn't, like everybody always hears about the Yale Daily News, it's mm -hmm. sort of a fabled newspaper, and you know lots of uh, David Lenhardt and all these people went wrote for the Yale Daily News. You wrote for the magazine, the New Journal. Yeah, and why was, why did you choose that and not? I, it the seemed sort like of too much work journalism. to go to the Daily News, honestly. And uh, that was right. Uh, and there's some great uh, today actually. At, uh, I ran into Robin Pogrebin, who was a classmate and was at the Daily News, and now she's at the New York Times, and writing about art. So she was writing about the uh, uh, the, the portraits of the Obamas. But uh, I was sort of thought of myself as a longer form writer, more you know, I'm I was a writer, deep author, uh, you know, yeah, deep, exactly, deep. and and also it's just it goes along with the Russian people with uh, right, uh, soul searching um, and blowing of deadlines, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, the, the Daily News is a lot of work. Like, people who did that, I mean, a lot of them went on to, like, law school and stuff. I mean, it was kind of a uh, hard-charging thing. And a lot of the folks who went to the New Journal went into journalism. In fact, uh, the year behind me was James Bennett. And uh, he yes. was the editor of the New Journal uh, the year yeah, after. the editorial page editor of the New York, New York Times. Times. And um, 
and it was just fun to write these stories and, and uh, you know, cobble together a magazine. And, and then I thought, okay, so I don't really have any skills and I don't really want to go to law school. What do I do? Journalism seems good. And then the Russian stuff and then what was happening in Moscow, and it all seemed obvious, but nobody wanted to send me right out of college. So you went to Miami. I went to Miami because I had had an internship at Time Magazine between my junior and senior year. I won, I was like, I won this internship program, and uh, this is all you know, serendipity, right? That, that summer, I went, and the first day was an intern lunch, and I sat down at this table at the Time Life Building, what was then the Time Life Building uh, near Rockefeller Center, and you know, 20 years old, I guess. And uh, the, I sat down to this, this guy who I thought might have been a fellow intern, but turned out to be the editor of the nation section, Walter Isaacson. Ah. And uh, we were talking and he said, oh, you should come write for me. And just for that reason, I ended up writing as a, like, you know, little short little pieces in the, in, in the weekly uh, magazine for Walter. And he was my first, uh, you know, professional editor, real editor, and uh, really helped me a lot. And that summer, I got to do something with my Russian, do a long, uh, like an essay piece for Time Magazine about this peace cruise down the Mississippi River, which was fascinating. And, uh, you know, because that was the summer of 86, and people were wondering, yes. was Gorbachev That's when real? Reagan and Gorbachev were right. in their big flirtation. Right. And they were wondering if this sort of reform talk was real. It was before, it was early days. And then, uh, but Walter had told me, go get newspaper experience. And I was like, okay. So I went and went to the Miami Herald uh, after college. And you got there at a propitious time as well, because things were happening in Panama. Yeah, I spent... Um, That's what strikes me about your life is you, you seem to show up at the right place at the right, right. time. Right. Or, yeah, well, fortunately, because nothing terrible yeah. has happened. It I mean, the wrong place. Yeah. But if you're a journalist, right. being in the wrong place at the right time exactly. is, it, well, that's is what the I tell best people, place to be. Yeah, they want to aspiring journalists and they're like, I want to get to Washington. It's like, go somewhere else. Go somewhere that nobody wants to go because it's a terrible place, a shithole or something like that, so to speak. And go find like a great story uh, because you'll there'll be a lot less competition than there is in DC to tell that story and uh, so yeah and I was in Miami so I started off the Miami Herald and but I was the whole time I was there as great as that experience was I was desperate to get to Moscow because of everything that was changing uh, and uh, you know using you know selling trying to sell my Russian and time hired me after I'd only been at the Herald for a little over a year, but they needed somebody in the near term in Miami. So I was the Miami bureau chief back when they had those things, uh, when I was 23 or 24. And when we invaded Panama, the Department of Defense was taking a plane of journalists uh, leaving from Miami. So I got on that plane and, and, uh, and ended up in, in Panama spending Christmas for that uh, little adventure. Uh, I remember we were in the hotel that was right next to um, the Holiday Inn, it was overlooking the Vatican embassy, which is where Noriega was hiding out, and they were blasting all that music. And it was a, a strange, strange way to spend Christmas. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and we should just explain, at that time, Noriega was all tied in with these drug cartels. He drifted into the Soviet orbit, and this, his CIA overseers were upset about Cut that. Cut him loose. Yeah. Yeah. And so they flushed him out. Those were those, that was a very strange story to be a part of, and uh, you know, crazy, crazy situation. And uh, in that period, you also Gorb, your Gorbachev, the aforementioned Gorbachev, right. went to Cuba. Yeah, yeah, you know a lot. Um, so that was an amazing. That was at the height of sort of Gorby mania. He was the biggest thing in the world, and he made a trip to Cuba. And when Castro was obviously still in power, and Fidel, that is, and. Uh, what was fascinating about it was that Cuban activists, human rights activists, 
pro-democracy activists were super excited because they thought Gorbachev was going to bring to Cuba what he was trying to make happen in what was then the Soviet Union, reform and, uh, you know, glasnost and Perestroika. Mm-hmm. And I remember, so, so this was one of the few times that the Castro regime let American reporters in, and we all came in, and uh, that one night, might have been the first night, all of these uh, human rights activists and others who were, in, you know, loved Gorbachev and wanted change in Cuba were allowed to have this press conference on top of a rooftop. And I remember we all, like a number of journalists, we went and there were sort of, you know, you could see thugs like circling the building, mm-hmm. and, you know, Cuban uh, secret police and stuff. And we went up and they had this very cathartic press conference and talking about the changes they wanted to see happen. Uh, and during that trip, too, I remember going to the Soviet embassy because that was the best place to get information. Because what, in fact, was happening is Gorbachev was cutting Cuba off. He said, we can't afford you anymore. We've been propping yeah. you up for years. We're broke, by the way. And, you know, I'm done. We're done. Good luck. Yeah. And, Which is uh, huge because yeah. the Ca- Castro had cast his entire lot with the Soviets, and the Soviets propped him up for exactly. decades. Exactly. So uh, one of the rare times, uh, both then, I mean, certainly during the Soviet era, when, you know, some of you getting great information from, like, I forget who it was, somebody in, uh, in the department there at the Soviet embassy who was uh, giving us the real story. Uh, one colleague of mine and I, and then uh, and and you know there was a brief period, and when I was years later based in Moscow, when there was uh, some of that transparency, and then of course not anymore. Uh, but a, a, a sad footnote to that is, of course, after Gorbachev left the island, uh, all of those people were arrested, and some of them were in jail for for a decade or more, um, who had come out hopeful that. Uh, you know, Castro would adopt that reform uh, mantle, and instead he just, um, you know, it got worse. It got worse for them. What? And after that, you finally got your transfer to Moscow, and you, there too, you arrived at a really, uh, yeah, in, incredibly uh, important time. It was inc- it was so exciting. To you be, were like what, twenty five? Yeah, 26? I got there. I spent the so it's summer of eighty nine. I spent filling in for somebody. Then I moved there in the spring of ninety. So I turned. 25 and 90, I guess. And yeah, and uh, so I was 24, 25. And um, only there, you know, with still very short professional career in journalism, but Time Magazine, like a lot of Western news organizations, was trying to beef up its presence there. And they would throw people who were uh, of dubious, you know, uh, you know, having a limited experience journalistically, but had Russian. Like we were, there was sort of the old guard of Moscow correspondents who were there because it was a place you went, interesting story, but you tended to just work with translators. And right. there were young folks who, who were only there because they happened to speak Russian. And... Uh, uh, and it was that's an really advantageous, isn't it? Because usually in any place it yeah. is, but it, there especially as the, you know, every day when we were there, when I was there during that period was especially leading up to the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, there were new things that had never happened before were happening, and everybody was testing the limits. So journalists, like, can we go there without getting, you know, hauled in and arrested with foreign ministry? You know, can we interview this person without him or her getting arrested? Can we, like, what, what's next? And what, like, is this a demonstration where the crackdown happens? Or is this, uh, you know, going to be the, um, the beginning of a flowering of democracy? You know, everything was, seemed possible. And there was a lot of positive energy, especially in the big cities, especially in Moscow and Leningrad at the time. And, uh, uh, you know, it all, what was, I mean, to, to Gorbachev's everlasting credit, he didn't use violence uh, uh, to try to keep the Soviet Union together. And there's a lot of resentment now uh, among the old guard uh, and the new old guard in, in Russia about that. Uh, and when there was violence in the Baltics, in Latvia and Lithuania, uh, he, you know, it was clearly not 
with his authorization or, or certainly not in keeping with his plan. So, and they, so they overthrew him. I mean, they tried to take him out in the most ridiculously bungled coup of all time. in the streets yeah. when the yeah. tanks rolled in, in I woke up on Monday Moscow. morning, August 19th, I think that was the day, or 18th or 19th, that Monday, and uh, we to a phone call from a Russian friend who was kind of a prankster, and he was—he said, you know, Gorbachev's been arrested, there's a state of emergency committee, and I was like, go to hell, hung up the phone. I thought he was joking, and it was because Gorbachev had gone on vacation, which meant my bureau chief, I was the number two in the bureau, had gone on vacation too, and so I was running the place, and he called right back and said, I'm not kidding, and and it was, you know, that incredibly, like, terrifying and exciting moment, which was like, holy, you know, holy cow, this is it, this is like this incredible story, and I remember hopping in my uh, crummy Zhigoli, which is a Soviet s- station wagon, and, and driving from my apartment down to the bureau where the Russian staff was going crazy, like freaking out. They didn't know what it meant for them. We had one uh, Russian whose daughter was supposed to go for an exchange program in a week or 10 days to the U.S. And so I took all, back then we were just a weekly. There was no online, there was no, so, and it was a Monday, kind of perfect timing for the Time Magazine. So we had, on the normal deadlines, we had five days. So I took all the petty cash out of our bureau uh, cash box and gave it to him so he could try to get his daughter out of the country, which he successfully did because the coup plotters were so lame they didn't close the airports thank god <laughs> and uh and you know within i remember getting everybody settled in the bureau and talking to the bureau chief who was on vacation i think in vienna or something and he was going to try to come back which he ended up being able to do that night and i drove downtown and i remember when i was driving in which was also further out from the center when i came into the bureau there were tanks and apcs on this main boulevard and i was you know scared and excited and then driving in i went all the way down to red square and by the time I got to Red Square, there weren't soldiers or tanks there yet. And I remember going out onto the Red Square, and there were tourists, mostly Russian tourists, you know, or Soviet tourists, and none of them had any idea what was happening. And I remember trying to do the man-on-the-street interview and, and telling them, and they're like, what? What are you talking about? No, what are you? that's crazy. And, uh, and then suddenly troops started piling in to, uh, to the big squares, Manej Square next to Red Square and the Red Square. And... and uh, you know, and, and they, were, they took the telephone and telegraph building. It felt sort of like the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, uh, and I talked to some soldiers who had no idea why they were there. And these are all 18-year-old conscripts, and they were, they thought they were on a training exercise. And, uh, but instead it was, you know, an and attempt this to... And was, this was the uh, episode in which Boris Yeltsin jumps on the tank. Yep. So that was, I to, guess, the he's next He's the president day. of the Russian Federation. Right. And he resists this coup. Yes. And which was an incredibly bold... And risky thing to do. And were you there when he did that? I sadly was on the other side of the building when he physically stood on the tank. Yeah. Uh, the same on the of the Russian White House. Uh, my now wife, who was working for CNN, saw it Claire happen. Shipman. Claire Shipman. Uh, uh, and we didn't know each other then. Oddly, we had met, but we didn't really know each other. And um, she saw it. But uh, you know, I, and I saw Yeltsin at different times during those days. And it was you know he was a hero, ironically, given what 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 came of him. But there was no guarantee that this thing was going to end in a positive way. Um, in fact, you would have to expect the worst. Uh, right. And um, No, through his sheer force of will, uh, he, he managed to head that off. Were you, uh, was there apprehension on your part? I know that there was another, you were an, uh, another, uh, on another occasion in Lithuania when there was actual violence yeah. and so on. I mean, did we you? We thought it was coming. We assumed it was coming. There were barricades set up and but did you have any fear for yourself? Sure. I mean, I'm not, you know, swashbuckling. Uh, uh, That's what I'm and, trying to find and, out. Yeah. And uh, 
I mean, but but there was the moment. There were a couple, few people killed in this terrible event, um, not far from both the Russian White House and the U.S. Embassy, where uh, some some you know innocent bystanders were were killed. I think there were three or four people in the end who were killed in Moscow during mm -hmm. that coup, and it was totally unnecessary and unfortunate. It wasn't, you know, it didn't need to happen because in the end, it was not the coup, coup plotters because of their ineptitude and their unwillingness, um, fortunately, to to go all the way with this. Uh, there wasn't bloodshed and there wasn't violence. And uh, but you always we thought it was coming. We assumed they were going to storm the White House. We assumed the worst. And so it was scary. And yeah, I mean, I we should just say a word about all these journalists in yeah. far flung places in the world. It's a dangerous world out there who do risk their lives to. And, to, and to let me try. say they don't do it for the money. And right. it's they they it's you know, it's I once I had kids, uh, you know, really rethought. Um, whether I would ever do that once I had kids. And, you know, there was a certain, maybe that's why publications hire young people to go to war zones, be, you know, take more risks. I, you know, that was scary. There were some times in Lithuania, there was a time, my most scary situation was in Nagorno-Karabakh, that disputed region between Azerbaijan and Armenia, when there was a full-on, like, assault on uh, the capital, uh, Stepanakert, when I was there, and bullets flying and, and, uh, and things. And I, you know, it was unbelievably terrifying and you think about the reporters who do that all the time in just terrible situations just so they can bring us the story that's that's a huge a huge gift that we have in democracies where journalism matters we're going to take a short break we'll be right back with jay carney while you were in uh in russia uh one of the politicians who was emerging at the time was vladimir putin uh, did you have contact with him in that period of time? I never, uh, n no, I didn't personally. But what was strange about the Putin story is that he was an advisor to the Demo first ever democratically elected mayor of Leningrad, Anatoly Sobchak, who was a academic. And he and the mayor of Moscow at the time, Gavriil Popov, were sort of the leading lights of, or among the leading lights, together with Yeltsin and others of this sort of pro-democracy movement. Uh, and so... Uh, I th I'm pretty sure he was in a room once when I was with Subchak, like just in the in the background, and I might have been introduced to him. But later, a few years later, when he emerged as a potential or likely successor to Yeltsin, I made the mistake of at least presuming that because he had been allied with Anatoly Subchak, that he was pro-West, pro-democracy. Um, of course, it didn't take him long to disabuse me or others of that. But and what he was obviously all about, having been a former KGB colonel, was, uh, you know, going where the, where the winds were, were sending him and, and where the power, uh, uh, the power centers were. And at that time, it, you know, there was strength in the pro-democracy movements and the pro-Western movements, and he was there. Uh, but then he obviously became something else. I read somewhere that you still speak Russian around the house. <laughs> well, my wife, uh, Claire, because she also, she had a very similar career path, studied Russian at the right time, ended up over there for CNN. Uh, so she, she and I still speak, you know, not very impressive Russian, but we do when we don't want our kids to know what we're saying, which annoys them uh, immensely. And we just say, well, go study Russian, but they're not, <laughs> not going to do it. It, it, hasn't, it. it hasn't taken. Are you surprised by uh, watching Putin now as a student of Russia to see what he's done here and, frankly, all throughout Europe? in yeah. terms of this uh, subversion of, of democracies. I'm not surprised because he so successfully built his career and his consolidation of power in Russia around the, um, 
resentment and uh, anger that Russians felt about uh, falling from you know the stature that the Soviet Union had as a great superpower to this sort of neglected and underappreciated country, uh, and they had been through a lot, and a lot of it not very good through the collapse of the Soviet Union and the economy. You think falling. we mishandled that, by the way? You know, it's hard to second guess. I think clearly the way we handled it didn't work, right? It didn't work in this. Now, now, could we, the West, the United States, have taken a different approach that would have been more helpful? I mean, the, the reality is we weren't in the 90s in the, you know, financial, we didn't have the financial capacity to launch a Marshall Plan all throughout the former Soviet Union or, or the Eastern Bloc. Uh, and you know, in some ways, you could argue that we over-assisted and, yeah. and that there what was... What about the expansion of NATO and uh, I think, some of these I other think gestures? That's, I think it seemed like, obviously, the right thing to do. I think now in the modern Europe, you look at uh, what's happening in Hungary and other places, and you wonder whether, uh, you know, we move too quickly. Mm-hmm. And that that also, you know, for those reasons, but also that it, that it if, you, if you have that, uh, uh, you know, assumption, you come from that place with the Russians where you feel like, the rest of the world's out to get you, and the West is, you know, conspiring to surround you. I think they were wrong about the West's motivation and wrong about the United States, but but you can see how that must have felt, which is not to justify any move he made. What I am surprised about with Putin is how successful he's been, because he's not playing with a great hand. He never has. The population's been declining. Their economy's not diversified, highly dependent on natural resources, the prices of which mm-hmm. have not always been kind to him and, and have been particularly low for the last uh, you know, five or six years. Uh, but he's managed to, with, um, with relatively few tools in his toolbox, to exert a tremendous amount of uh, influence over Europe and especially what they call the near abroad, those countries closer to, to, to Russia in the east, uh, and obviously to, to uh, have an impact here in the United States and elsewhere. Well... Mining resentment has become a, especially in the era of social media, yeah. uh, a, a, a a pretty significant political tool. It and has. he's masterful at it, not just in his own country, but he's obviously he and his social media minions have been very good at that. In, What's uh, also striking is that the Soviet Union and and similar type countries had always been, uh, you know, had propaganda and agitation had always been part of their, you know, one of the tools they used. Uh, but it, it, that seems so antiquated as a as a mode for an increasingly sophisticated world population, especially in developed countries. As it turns out, they were able to adopt that approach uh, or adapt it rather to modern tools of communication masterfully. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in heinous and hideous mm-hmm. ways. Uh, and and you know, we see the the power of disinformation and propaganda. Fake news, uh, you know, it worked. Real then. fake news, real, you know, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, the, the actual, the actually fake news, and uh, and and they've they've uh, run rings around us uh, in in the way that they've taken those tools and used them against us. We, uh, you came back to the U.S. and you covered Washington for for years, and you covered some pretty eventful, yeah, uh, uh, eventful circumstances. You were. Uh, uh, I guess you were covering Congress during the Gingrich years, mm-hmm. the impeachment years. Uh, I once sat in a room with uh, Newt Gingrich when he was speaker where he described himself uh, in all sincerity as a world historical transformational figure. Um, yeah. No modesty there. And uh, he was out it's as speaker. It's hard to get on a business card. <laughs> <laughs> he was out as speaker not long thereafter. But, 
I mean, uh, he was a pretty he he was a, a, a historical out. figure right. in the sense that uh, he engineered the election of this Republican Congress, and. You talk about mining the politics of resentment. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a force for division within that Congress, and those divisions have only grown deeper and more profound. And he does have a certain genius for that. Yes, it's a disturbing genius. But but it, like a lot of, I mean, although he's adapted along the way, you know, he was- People don't bar- like that when I say genius. Yeah. But there are evil, gen- there's yes. evil genius. There's, you know, genius doesn't Gen- necessarily always work right. for good. Unfortunately. And he- um, I mean, what's funny to remember is that a lot of the leaders of the Republican Party who who helped nurture this movement uh, then were eaten up by it, right? Because they sort of created they they created something that then decided they weren't pure enough or crazy enough or whatever. And and he was one of them. He was thrown out largely because yeah. he wasn't considered right. He rode the tiger enough. and then the tiger ate and, you know, him. He's tried to you know recast himself over the years. Uh, you know, uh, into whatever mold he thinks is the right one for, uh, for I guess, his own ambitions and, and purposes. But uh, he was considered, like, because he cut some deals with Bill Clinton, and ba- you know, it, that was you know, right. that was too much for some of uh, some of the members that he had he had brought in, and uh, you know, whose mentality he had mur- nurtured. And you see that with the Tea Party, right? You see that with you know, what is this? Is this what they created? Is this what you know the so-called leaders of that movement? Is this well, what and they in wanted? fairness, we see some of that on the left. Who mm-hmm. just yeah. this this uh, uh, we saw it around the Affordable Care Act. You know, don't cut a deal unless it includes a public option. And I think all the time about the people who I meet and probably who you meet who've been helped by the Affordable Care Act and how irresponsible it would have been because there wouldn't have been an Affordable Care right, Act if you, we could not have passed that bill without the public option. You have to. With, with, with a public option. I mean, you know this uh, better than I do, but the, you know, the, the success in governing requires compromise. And it requires, and then the political side of success in governing is, is requires uh, explaining and selling that compromise as a victory for the people you were trying to help. Right. And, and it was, and it is. And, and, yeah. uh, Although, you know, the times in which we live are so fundamentally polarized that just the act of any sort of cooperation becomes suspect. Well, I remember when you and I, my the early days in the White House, I was working for the vice president, and you were there. And I, you know, we we had a lot of like some of the most frustrating critics were on the left because, yeah. and uh, you know, I'm super proud uh, about President Obama's progressive legacy. And uh, did he make compromises? Did he? Yeah, because he wanted to get things done. Otherwise, first of all, you don't get there, and you don't get anything done. Yeah, you probably remember because the vice president was a major broker of this. We're jumping ahead in the story here, but in 2010, uh, 10, the, after this smashing defeat in the midterm elections, he brokered a lame duck uh, session kind of mega deal with Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. that included um, refundable tax credits and a lot of progressive goals, but also extended the Bush tax cuts for two more years. And that was hugely uh, controversial Huge. with uh, elements of both parties, frankly. Right. right. Um, so uh, the other, you, you covered the election of 2000. Another sort of kind of uh, along the way in our political wars, uh, you know, significant event because of the recount that left people scorched and uh, and cynical. But you were covering the White House on September 11th of 2001. Uh, David Gregory was on 
this podcast a few weeks ago and uh, talked about that that time, he mm-hmm. too being a White House correspondent. But you were in the pool with the president. Right. What was it like that day when... Uh, it was... I remember... The night before I had dinner, we were down in Florida, and, and I just—I was the Time Magazine White House reporter. It was—I happened to have pool duty for this trip. And uh, back when Time—I don't know if they anymore do—but back when we actually, you know, footed the bill for sending a correspondent on those uh, kinds of trips, and uh, having—I had dinner with a senior White House official in the in the relatively new Bush 43 White House, and the you know the whole conversation was about if you remember back then was. Was he frittering away his presidency? Yeah, because, he was deeply. Yeah, he he was deeply in in deep political trouble. In deep political early trouble. in his term, then. right? And and uh, he had had a defection from the Republican Party in the Senate. He was, uh, uh, you know, uh, conservatives were unhappy with him. People were calling for Donald Rumsfeld's head uh, as Secretary of Defense. Uh, of course, none of us saw any of this happening. And the next morning, we get in the motorcade, because we I was in the pool, so, you know, staying in the president's hotel, and we load into the van, and we get out at the school, and I, walking into the school, and as, it, you know, having read the histories, that's when Condi Rice, who was National Security Advisor, found out, as she was, uh, I think, in the motorcade, too, and, and that something had happened at one of the World Trade Centers. And we, we were rushed into that room where the president would then read to the school children. And somebody from the Bush press office said, uh, by the way, guys, just so you know, a plane hit one of the World Trade Center mm-hmm. towers. We think it was a Cessna. You know, it was just sort of just so you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we all pile into the classroom. The president comes in. There's a rope line. It's just the pool. So, I don't know, 14, 15 people. And President reads, President Bush reads to those kids. And then back then, my pet goat or something. Yeah, like yeah. And I have to say, I've always like some of the some of the narrative around did he take too long? I mean, I, I I actually think he handled that very well. But suddenly, people still had pagers back then, and also because Bush was particularly like not happy when people's phones went off, everybody was on vibrate, and suddenly the room started vibrating, and and it was all the journalists' phones and pagers going off. And then Andy Card walks in. Andy Carter was the White House, chief, White House of chief of staff, and famously leans over and tells President Bush what had happened. And uh, and and we, I, I honestly can't really remember what we knew as then the president, we in the pool, as the president was finishing reading to the kids. But you must have thought it unusual that Very the White unusual. House chief of staff would come in and whisper to the president while he was talking to a group of kids. Yes, and and then I do believe because before we left that room, we knew that the the second tower had been hit and that it wasn't an accident. And as you recall, we all, you know, then the, the bigger press corps, including us, went into the, I think it was a cafeteria or a gym where he was going to give an education speech, and he came out and said, um, we've been attacked by terrorists, I'm going back to Washington. And then uh, in ways that you and I would never have experienced, otherwise, I did as a reporter, but not in the Obama years, thank God, like we loaded that motorcade and took off for the uh, for Air Force One and then took off on Air Force One, like vertical blur, like straight mm-hmm. up. And, uh, and that whole time, because of the live TV on on Air Force One, we were watching the towers burn and then come down yeah. and wondering where we were going. And the reporters on TV were saying, He's, the president's coming back to Washington. But we banked left. Like, we headed west and ended up in Louisiana at Barksdale Air Force Base. So that was a, you know, it was just a hard day, terrible day for, for everyone. And, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I have uh, over the years imagined having served a president and been in the White House and, and been in some difficult times, you know, just imagined how profoundly challenging that would have been for, yeah. for, for the president, for everybody uh, on that team. 
Absolutely. You know, one of the things that struck me when I was working in the White House, it, it does change the way you think about everybody who worked there before, mm-hmm. because no one really understands just how challenging and difficult it is. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it, there's no, it's like there's nothing more uh, subject to uh, sort of uh, commentary from the peanut gallery than politics, even sports. Everybody's an expert. Right. Yeah. And then you get there and you realize, damn, this is, this is really complicated. And what I took away and what I remember telling people when I had the privilege of, of being there and then being in those rooms working for the president was that you're struck by how fundamentally human and small the enterprise is, that in the end, these momentous decisions are made, the hard ones, of course, are made by one person, one you know leader, uh, but even the ones that are debated and discussed, it's just a handful of people trying to do the best they can with limited information, often making choices between bad and worse. And not really being sure exactly. which is which. Well, and President always used to say, as you know, only the impossible ones get to him. Everything yeah. else gets decided by Yeah, we, we got the easy else. ones. But, um, and so I, you know, I, I, again, I, I have a lot of time for, um, for folks who have been in that situation. I mean, in every administration leading up. I and mean, I, I, I fundamentally believe that with some exceptions through the years, but certainly in my lifetime, um, you know, for the most part, the people who serve are there for the right reasons. They're trying to do the best they can, you know, based on their own view of what that means in terms of policies. Uh, and there have been exceptions, obviously, you know, Nixon White House and, and the like, but mostly it's been, um, you know, well, this White House human is, doing, this, human this White House is stretching yeah. the limits here. I was talking about the past. Yeah. Yes, no, yeah. I understand <laughs> that. Let me ask you, you, you know, when I left the newspaper business to go to to work in politics, I got us lectured by a lot of journalists about what a stupid decision it was and how I'd ruined my life because you could never come back. Right. You were functioning at a very high level in politics when you left in 2000. You mean in journalism, yeah. In journalism. When you left uh, uh, to uh, go to work for Vice President Biden, um, what caused you to do that? And was there any apprehension on your part about, you know, what— other journalists would say, going over to sure. the dark side. <laughs> well, I, uh, you may remember I, I adapted pretty quickly, and, I, and partly because, um, well, it wasn't a plan. I didn't, I mean, I'd like to joke that I ended up having this incredible experience because I'm in a really crappy garage band with Tony Blinken, whom... Yeah, Tony you know, Blinken, foreign who, policy aide to the yeah, vice president, yeah. former deputy, became deputy secretary of state. And, and plays a mean left-handed guitar. But, um, and he's a, he's a very close friend. But, but I, as a journalist, and I'll, obviously there'll be lots of people who, who doubt this or criticize it, but I, had, I was old school. I wasn't an advocate as a reporter and uh, wasn't looking to join an administration, but as a, as a human being and as a citizen and a voter, I was incredibly excited about um, Barack Obama and, and having had a, a really a strong relationship with John McCain in the past and, and respected covered him, McCain's covered campaign. McCain and I, and I respected him a lot. But um, uh, I remember speaking with Tony the day after the election, congratulating him and, and, and we had this conversation about, like, maybe you should come in. And I was thinking, oh, Russia, maybe I'll do something in foreign policy because of my background. And, uh, and he mentioned that the vice president-elect was going to be looking for a communications director. And that started a conversation which suddenly, a few weeks later, led to me leaving uh, 
Time Magazine after 20 years and journalism after 21 and, and going over. And journalists, to go to your point, asked me, like, isn't it hard? Like, now you used to be able to say whatever you want. Now you have to toe the line. I said, you know what? It's the opposite. Uh, because I'm aligned with the president, the vice president, the, the team. But I used to not be able to say what I wanted. And, and now I actually get to say what I Do you think journalists, and now I'll put your hat on as because you ultimately become the spokesperson for the president, do you think uh, journalists in this age of Twitter and social media are less restrained than they should be about expressing themselves? I, I do think they are. I think that there's some, it's a net negative. I think there's some upside to having people be, <laughs> like you get to see them for who they are perhaps or what their, what their uh, perception is and maybe biases are. But I think that uh, it has blurred the line between you know, those folks in my day in, in the print world who were columnists and wrote opinion columns and then the rest of us who wrote and reported straight up news, which is I've never argued that the, the, the so-called objective members of the mainstream media were without uh, blinders on some issues or without biases. But I mean, I, I remember when I went to work for the vice president and somebody, the New York Times wrote a story about me, Time Magazine, Washington Bureau Chief, leaving journalism to go do this. And they quoted a colleague of mine at Time Magazine, Joe Klein, saying, I always thought Jay was a Republican. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I think that simply reflected that I did keep it to myself. And, um, you know, I, uh, but I was so excited for the opportunity and did believe, found it remarkably easy to, to make that transition. Um, and I think that what I tried to bring to it, and you did, had this too, having been in journalism, is an understanding of journalists and what their motivations were. Because I think one of the risks that always happens in political campaigns and White Houses and probably, you know, senators' offices and things, especially if you're in the spotlight, is you, when you start getting bad press, you, you assign motivations to uh, the press corps or members yeah. of the press that are probably inaccurate and much more malign than, than the truth is. And, you know, you have to... Uh, I also think there's assumption, a, a mistaken assumption on the part of some people in politics that the job of reporters is to write exactly what they say right. without any interpretation of whether it's true or not true. That's certainly the case with this president. Let me ask you a question about uh, that, and, uh, which you've watched now two press secretaries for this president. You've been the press secretary for a president. Uh, what What is the price of being the press secretary for a president who uh, serially doesn't tell the truth. It's not a job I recognize. I couldn't imagine what that's like because I couldn't imagine myself being in that position. And I'm not morally superior. I just don't think I could do that. And I don't think, I mean, I, I spoke to almost every living predecessor before, between the time I was announced and the time I first did a briefing as press secretary. And to a person, Republican and Democrat, they included among you know their observations and advice, never lie. Not obviously, it's the wrong thing to do, but your credibility up there is just an extension. You know, if your credibility starts to erode, the president's credibility starts to erode, the administration's credibility, the country's credibility, and uh, you know what became obvious, both from the advice I got and then doing the job, is you know there are uncomfortable questions that you don't want to answer, and you don't. You say. Right. I can't answer that. Yeah, but or if you're I, sent out there by the president to say and, a crowd was the largest yeah, well, ever when it wasn't. Or, and then, I mean, I remember people asking me, what, what did you do when your president asked you to say something wasn't true? I said, it never happened. Right. 
it, it's, it's, it's inconceivable to me that it ever would have happened. I mean, this president, I mean, this meaning Barack Obama, would never have asked me to do that. And I know he never asked anybody else to do that. And because uh, he knew that, that you know, you know, the, the path from there is, ter- not, you know, it's just it's, it's the road to ruin when it comes to credibility yeah. for, for things that matter more than the individual, the press secretary or the president. We've got to take another break. We'll be right back with Jay Carney. You were the press secretary when uh, the bin Laden raid went down. How much visibility did you have into that? Very little. Uh, I uh, was on the trip uh, with the president uh, the weekend, uh, that day trip, I guess, on Saturday, when he authorized the mission in that morning with, um, uh, before he left. And, of course, we didn't know. I mean, that, you know, too, uh, absolutely appropriately, like, press and political people just didn't know what was going on until I got an email from Ben Rhodes on Sunday telling me to come in. I'm like, really? National security. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, a senior person on the national security uh, team. And uh, I I remember complaining to my wife, really, I got to go in. I don't know what's going Hmm. on. And uh, of course, when I got to the White House on Sunday, it was, you know, extraordinary news. And um, uh, I remember sitting with David Pluff, you know, your uh, colleague and mine Mm -hmm. and friend and, and in my office and and Dan Pfeiffer and, and just absorbing this and with Ben and absorbing this this news uh, and, and, you know, what it would mean. And also, uh, you know, what it would what it would mean for the country cathartically, um, given what what had happened uh, in 2001 on 9-11. And uh, I, I was something that we really felt that later that night when the president spoke and the crowds were outside. And um, it was, uh, you know, just an incredible feeling of. Uh, closure, I think, for a lot of people. Did you, uh, did you have a sense of the, when you went and backtracked on it, the sense of the burden of the decision? I did. I, you know, when I learned more about it, I talked to the president about it when we later visited uh, the folks who participated in the mission. And, and uh, I mean, it, this was not a call that just anybody would make. Um, the consequences, obviously, of being wrong could have been enormous. Um, they were already significant in terms of Pakistan and, and, and relations with uh, other countries. But, uh, you know, imagine if, if the thing had gone really awry or that it, bin Laden wasn't there. And none of that was known for sure, right. not even close to right. uh, for sure. And the president made a very uh, lonely and difficult decision. Uh, and I'm just grateful it turned out the right way. You, uh, you talked about your appreciation for the role of journalists. They pissed you off a lot yes. when you were press secretary, famously. Yes. And how much of that a had few to, in particular. How much did that have to do with um, with you having been a journalist? I mean, you would think on the one hand it would make you more sympathetic to journalists. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, like I found myself sometimes saying, man, that was sl- sloppy. Yeah. I, the thing that I got most frustrated with uh, was in, in the room, you know, it had become – become theatrical, it become confrontational. And adversarial is important. Now more than ever, we know that that's important. It's not supposed to be a cozy relationship. It's supposed to be, there's supposed to be tough questions. Spokesman's supposed to be put on the spot. Uh, and anybody who stands up there to answer questions for the president, from the president on down, should be put on the spot. But I got frustrated by the sort of uh, theatricality of it. And, and often, I think some of my frustration, and maybe I should go back and tell some of the folks that I got mad at, uh, that, that what was happening, too, was I saw myself in some of them. 
And I saw that there were times when I was a White House reporter that I uh, chased the same ball down the field that everybody else was and made more of a story than probably it deserved and hyped it and, uh, you know, took the easy way out, as it were, instead of, uh, you know, doing something less glamorous and, and making extra phone calls and really digging and doing the reporting. Uh, you know, I, I learned a lot about myself as a reporter in be- becoming press secretary in particular and working with reporters who were doing the job that I had done. And I don't think I came out that well in my own estimation. I realized that I could have been a lot better. And How about looking back as press secretary? Are there confrontations that you had with the media? I know there was a lot of unhappiness about uh, about the posture of the administration that taken on leaks, mm-hmm. prosecuting leaks and so on. Um, and there were testy exchanges. Yeah. Um, there are things that you find yourself saying, man, you know, I probably shouldn't have done that. Well, I definitely regret uh, any time I lost my cool at the podium, which wasn't often, but, but happened because it's easy in the room to win that exchange. You're on the high ground, literally. You control the room, more or less, and it feels good. But when yeah. you watch it on Fox... It's terrible, and you realize you just did your boss a disservice right. by making yourself the story. Or, or like any time I got into it with Ed Henry, for all the From right Fox, reasons yeah. of Fox or Jonathan Carl at ABC or anybody else, um, you know, Fox would use that to to you know our disadvantage, and mm-hmm. that and that's that's why I realized that I had you know more importantly than anything about how I felt about it was that like, that you can't do that because you know in the way. You've you know, you've poorly served the president and and not done your job well. So I the times that I did lose it, I didn't lose it, but you know times my agitation showed uh, uh, were regrettable for that reason. And then there were times I was un- sure unfair to reporters on you know who were legitimately asking the tough questions, and I got frustrated. Uh, but there were also times when you know I I shouldn't have done it, but man, did they deserve it? <laughs> <laughs> there, uh, as you say, it probably felt good. Yeah. The uh, these are times that you, you talked about when you were at Time in the early years and you were a weekly, there was no internet and so on. Um, this sort of moment-to-moment uh, uh, life that you live now with social media, with cable television, where every day is the decisive day of the administration, makes it pretty hard to operate. I, uh, I admire um, reporters who are doing this well because it's really hard. It's got, I mean, it's... You, you are they're under so much pressure to uh, say something about everything to report something new every minute and and uh, and so that when I see people who are reporters who are doing incredibly uh, responsible uh, work that requires uh, a lot of reporting and a lot of checking and a lot of backtracking and maybe like following a story in directions they didn't expect I admire that and and I really think that the reporters I talk to in in what I guess pejoratively would be called the mainstream media, what yeah. I would call the legitimate media, um, uh, who are who are. I mean, I think they feel good about the fact, and they should that, like their calling is is more obviously essential than I think it's been in a long time, and uh, because some of our institutions are in question, yeah, including the freedom of the press. You uh, now work for another nation state called Amazon, <laughs> uh, and I want to ask you about that, and maybe a good segue is. Um, I don't know whether it's an avocation or how you describe it, but uh, Jeff Bezos, your, uh, who, who is uh, famously the, the, the uh, chair of Amazon and 
all things Amazon. Um, he also bought the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. Does he ever talk to you about the Post? Does he ask your advice on that or your? So it's uh, just so viewer. I mean, listeners know this is the Washington Post, not owned by Amazon. Right. Uh, There's some confusion. One of the one of the, thing, one of the uh, small things no, that no, isn't no, owned no. by Amazon. That's not true. But um, but Jeff bought it, and Jeff Bezos, the the, the CEO of of Amazon, bought it, and he and he owns it uh, separately. Yeah, I've talked to him about it, but I don't get involved in... You ever have a hankering to go back and do no, that? I, I, I They've don't. Got, he's done a wonderful job with it. They're I, really doing good journalism. What I, what I, what I as just as a, somebody who actually grew up here, and the Post was my hometown paper, I mean, you, David, you may recall this. I certainly do. There were times when there was a bad story in the Washington Post when we were in the White House when we would console ourselves by saying, that's okay, nobody's going to read it. Right. Now, that was exaggeration, but the paper was not what it had been. No, it was on the da- – no, he saved the Washington and Post. What, what, well, I would just say, again, this is, this is – it's not Amazon and it's not my job, but as somebody who cares about this, what he did that was so important is he, he brought his – obviously, he financially helped it, uh, and he, but he believed that there was an economic model that, that could keep the Washington Post – uh, vibrant and profitable, and and he wasn't sure exactly what it was, but he believed that we could be found, and I think that gave that institution a lot of hope. And then, of course, they have a phenomenal editor in Marty yeah, Barron, yeah. and and the whole team over there is great. So, yeah. and, and they've added a lot of great, yeah, talent. But it helps to have someone who is no, willing to his, make the investment. I mean, Jeff's instincts on like core issues about the sanctity of the First Amendment, about uh, the need for an independent well, media. Well, there all you go to the Washington Post website now, and the first thing you see is democracy dies in the yeah. darkness. So that tells you something. So let's talk about Amazon. You know, I, I, I'm looking at some figures here on my phone. Uh, fifth largest company by market value. Amazon sells 52% of all books. It's got 45% of the cloud computing market, 53% of all online commerce, and is moving into grocery business. Uh, now, I want to talk about healthcare in a right. second. But, you know, and I, I'm a big consumer, uh, as many people I know are, of Amazon. It's made life a lot easier. There's, there are benefits for consumers. It is enormously disruptive. And you've seen it had it's had an impact on the retail industry uh, that has that you know where where old jobs have gone away, where local uh, sort of the mom and pop store, the, the local independent bookstores, and all that stuff have gone away in many communities. Um, make the case for why that that's not a concern. Sure. Well, a, a couple of things that kind of a nice way to are misunderstood, yeah. I think about. Uh, Amazon, because we are, the company is involved in so many different businesses that it often appears to be uh, deeper than it is when it's just, uh, it's got more scope, but not necessarily depth. We, uh, I think one is, one number that I don't think is accurate in terms of the size of e-commerce, uh, of you know, of which we're a big player, uh, relative to the overall size of the retail market is, is very, very small. We are still much smaller than some of the biggest retailers out there like Walmart, much smaller. And uh, you would when we when we made the announcement around the acquisition of, of Whole Foods, uh, by some of the press, you would have thought we were taking over grocery in America. But combined, we're less than three percent of grocery. Much all the big chains are much bigger, uh, as is you know Walmart and others. So, uh, but we are in a lot of different businesses. So it feels like you know you know we're very integrated into our customers' lives, and we're grateful for that. The um, one thing that that has happened, like 
in the last several years, there's been a resurgence of uh, independent bookstores in America, like a double-digit increase year after year. I think that some of the some of the disruption that you talk about in the retail markets has been due to malls and other kinds of big box stores uh, as much as the evolution of e-commerce. And one thing that we, uh, I think, do bring that's really important to remember is we're one of the fast, biggest job creators in the United States right now, and as well as obviously uh, outside the United States. Uh, and we hire up and down the economic ladder across the country. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, I think we announced a year ago, a little over a year ago, that we'd be hiring 100,000 people in America in the, in the ensuing 18 months. And pretty much without exception, those jobs, even the lower wage jobs in our fulfillment centers are higher paying with much better benefits than the alternatives that uh, might be available to the folks who are working in those jobs. And one of the things that I'm really uh, gratifying for me uh, is our, and this starts from the top with, with, with uh, Jeff, is that our, our benefit structure is completely egalitarian. This, the, if you start working in a fulfillment center, starting level job tomorrow, you get the same health care that I get. And, it's, and that means that our benefits, which have to compete with uh, the tech companies, are really good, and they're, they're just, there's not a comparison with, uh, with other uh, retailers. But, but, you, but you accept the fact that the, these, this, is a, this is a disruption in our commerce. This isn't a benign thing in the sense that there, people are changing the way in which they, I, well, they, I, they I think that every time, stuff. every time that there's a change in the way that we uh, conduct our business, that it can be disruptive, but that's always been true before e-commerce and, and you know, going back to malls and, uh, and big box stores, and will be true in the future. And, and uh, this, you know, the, the amount of competition in this space uh, is fierce. The fact is retailers are doing really well in America right now, not, uh, not just us. And uh, uh, you know, I think there's uh, opportunity for a lot of uh, economic success, as long as obviously the overall global economy and the American economy continue to, to expand and, and do well. Um, and I, my, you know, I think that getting to your question that companies like ours that have become recognizable and, and have some scale, we do have a responsibility to, uh, to be part of the solution when it comes to dealing with some of that economic disruption that's in general, out there, and one, a program that I can't take credit for because it predates my time at Amazon that we do, with, yeah, in our fulfillment centers, is called Career Choice, which we prepay tuition, ninety-five percent of tuition for f- fulfillment center employees to take classes and get certified in different areas and high-demand fields, often fields that take them outside of Amazon if that's what they want. So, going to get a nursing certificate or a commercial driver's license, truck driver's license, or something like that. We and it's we prepay the tuition because. A lot of programs, great programs, reimburse, but for a lot of folks, getting that money up front is hard. So if you prepay it, they're much more inclined to adopt and take those courses. So, and I think that goes right at some of the core economic challenge we face in that strata uh, of the economy. I don't want to run out of time without asking about this healthcare thing mm-hmm. because um, the healthcare companies reacted negatively when there was this announcement that Amazon, in partnership with J.P. Morgan and uh, uh, Berkshire Hathaway were 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 looking to get into uh, healthcare, um, but I think that's one area where a lot of people applauded that on the notion that maybe if you guys could bring prices down in other 
realms that you could bring prices down in healthcare. What was the thinking in getting into the healthcare uh, arena? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. The you, and you saw it in the press release uh, uh, that came out after that announcement. Um, you know, I think all three companies, and I can only speak f- for one of them. You know, see this because of this, uh, the size and the number of employees as a, as a challenge that everybody's facing. You know, in terms of the, the growing cost and of healthcare and the need to uh, to somehow get a hold of those costs while maintaining and improving care. Uh, and the three companies came together to see if collectively we might be able to uh, come up with some solutions that attack that problem. That's pretty much it at this stage. It's really early days, and I and I think uh, we we're very aware and humble about uh, the fact that this is a challenge that has bedeviled policymakers and private companies for a long, long time in the United States. We know personally from our time in government how 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 challenging this is. So uh, it's I think we have to see uh, you know how this how this initiative unfolds because we wouldn't pretend to say. We wouldn't for a minute say, and we certainly couldn't say, that we have the answers now. Mm-hmm. But there obviously is some confidence. I mean, Bezos's uh, sort of uh, modus operandi is to take on these sort of big future-oriented sort of challenges and try and solve them, whether it's the, the sort of uh, adaptation of the, uh, uh, of, of the market uh, that Amazon has taken on, or space travel, which is something else that he's shown uh, an interest in. He must believe that this is a problem that will yield to the kind of technology that uh, that we that we have today, the tools we have today. I think it's fair to say that we he think you know that, that it's a it's a it's a problem that needs some solutions, and that it's worth trying to find them. That's really the approach. That he mm-hmm. takes and and the businesses take to different endeavors, like why does Amazon do this thing and not that? And partly it is is there is there a, a customer um, need that isn't met or is poorly met, and is there something we can bring to it, like some idea we have or approach we have uh, that that might solve that problem or or uh, take care of that need? It, we don't necessarily know going in. But and again, I'm I'm not on the business side. These uh, folks who are, are are much more articulate. When are they supposed going to roll something out on? We this? haven't said anything, and and I think it's because this be a good spot for it. Yeah, because it's really no. But it, honestly, it really is. We we have mm-hmm. we've had a lot of incoming from people who are, who are very very interested in what it's going to be and wanting to help. You know, have ideas, and right now we're just taking it and and uh, you know promising people we'll get back to them because we don't you know we're still building it out. Mm-hmm. You know, finally, you, you worked with, uh, we mentioned the Vice President Vice President Biden, President Obama, uh, with Bezos. Uh, talk, to the, talk to me about what uh, the, the three principles for whom hmm. you've, you've worked. I mean, you covered a bunch of people. We've talked about that. But talk to me about them because they're very different people. Yeah. One, people ask me a lot about, especially, you know, the President Obama and, and, and Jeff Bezos, you know, so different, or maybe they're the, you know, what are they, what are the differences, or how are they similar? And one, they're obviously very different. And but but one way in which they're similar is they take the long view. And you know this, you know, of course, working with President Obama, that you know there were times when 
we'd go running to him and say, you should do this, you should do that. And he'd say, no. And it's like, we're going to get killed if you don't. No. And right. it's because he had a, he had a, a sense of where he wanted to right. go and wasn't worried by the day-to-day Probably strum. one of his greatest strengths. One of his greatest strengths. Even even at times, like I know there were times yeah. when I felt uh, frustrated that he didn't. Yeah, he didn't what, believe we. He didn't believe he had to win every day. Right, and he had a long term. And it's funny. View. I remember talking about his long view once uh, in the briefing room from the from the lectern, and 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 then that memory uh, came back to me when I was uh, having gotten Amazon and 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 absorbing the culture a little bit in this sort of willingness to be mis- misunderstood that that uh, Amazon has had, this sort of what are they doing, like why would they invest in that, what, you know, why isn't that kind of crazy. You think about the sort of when you go on to Amazon.com, a little known fact, more than half of what you see is not Amazon. It's somebody else. It's another seller, a lot of small and medium-sized mm-hmm. businesses, thousands and thousands of them. And that was a decision made, you know, a long, long time ago to invite others to sell in the Amazon marketplace that if you read the histories of it, a lot of people thought it was crazy. It's like, why would you invite somebody into your store and compete with you directly and you're gonna treat them the same way, same display, same uh, uh, access to your customers? And the thinking was because that's what the customer wants. And it was a big bet and it worked out, right? And, and that long view is something that still infuses sort of the culture and decisions that Amazon makes as it decides you know, what what new thing to, to try or what, and sometimes the new things are really small, like iterations on existing businesses or customer experiences. And, but it's always about like what, you know, what's going to look like in four or five years. So, uh, you, you, the third guy, Biden, mm-hmm. uh, do you, uh, I know you spent some time. Is he going to run? Is that, yeah. do you, do you, well, do you, do you think he will? Do you think he should? I, I, I don't know if he will. I honestly have no idea. And I, I did, uh, I have chatted with him, but I, I'm, I, you know, I, I don't think, uh, he he's decided, but it's for him to obviously say. But I I um, look, I think he's a, a profoundly good person and a and a profoundly uh, good public leader, and would have made uh, a great president if uh, if he had been called upon or if he had run last time and won. And you know, I I I'd, I'd be happy if he were president. Um, but that's a that's, running for office is such a like for this office. I mean, what a what yeah. a brutal experience. And I don't know. And he knows that. And he knows that. I mean, this is somebody who's been through a lot in his life, and uh, and as he said, keeps getting up, especially when those things are hard that knock him down. But um, you know, I I, I, I don't know what he's going to do. But you, yeah, I you know I I I wouldn't mind seeing him in the uh, in in the position. You ever see yourself back in public life? You know I. You never say never because I never saw myself in public life. I had the best job imaginable working for the best people you could have worked for in the best experience. It's hard to see it, but, I, you know, who knows? Yeah. Well, you always seem to turn up where the action is, so <laughs> I'm, not, uh, yeah. I'm not counting it out. Okay. Jay Carney, great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to see you, Axe. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.